So we're going to be reading 1 Samuel 7, 3 through 14. Samuel judges Israel. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on the day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry for us that they may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel, and the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called it Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territories from the hands of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. All right, you can have a seat. Don't need you standing there the whole time. Be a a miserable wait. Well, have any of you guys heard of the book or maybe the movie? Maybe you've read or watched Ben-Hur by show of hands? All right. Best book of all time. It's written in the late 1800s by a guy named Lou Wallace. It's the story of this young Jew boy uh, named Judah Ben-Hur. And uh, he's born into a prominent Jewish family. And he uh, is one day framed for um, something that he didn't do. Uh, It was framed that he was trying to assassinate a Roman governor. And so he is split up from the rest of his family and sold into captivity. He doesn't know what the fate of his family is, but he assumes it's pretty grim. And so he goes into Roman captivity, and many years pass, uh, and the story picks up that he is uh, one of the Rome, the Roman, on the Roman warship. Didn't mean to do that. Um, And he is a slave who is rowing for the Roman army. And they go into battle, uh, and the uh, ship that he's in, he ends up actually, through a turn of events, saving uh, the Roman general who was in charge of their ship. So this Roman general, out of gratitude for Judah, ends up adopting him. And now uh, Judah is in kind of this weird spot. The Romans, the ones who wrecked his life, uh, sold him into slavery, most likely have 
murdered his family, and now he's been adopted by one of the highest-ranking Roman generals, and he is enlisted in the Roman, like, training regimen. So he's getting the best of the best Roman training, but he didn't forget what the Romans did to him. And so, uh, as the story goes, he uh, one day goes back to his homeland of Israel, and he stumbles upon a site that he didn't expect. Uh, he sees this man named John the Baptist, and he baptizes this other guy named Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins following this Jesus. He follows him for his whole public ministry. He becomes convinced that this Jesus is the promised Messiah that the scriptures testify about. And so he's, got, he's getting thinking, like the scriptures testify about this king who's going to one day rule over everything. His, the whole government will be on his shoulders. And he, he starts plotting. He's like, I want to use my army experience to be the general in the Messiah's army. And so he begins, he's following Jesus, but he begins amassing some people around him, a little small, like, legion that follows Jesus around. And after about three years, he thinks that Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem and announce his kingship. And the craziest turn of events happens. Jesus goes into the city, and after a couple of days, is slaughtered and killed at the hand of the Roman government. And, and then the book ends. And uh, Lou Wallace goes on to write a couple other books in the series. I haven't read them. Maybe Ben-Hur goes on to worship this slain but risen Messiah, but the brilliance of the contained story of Ben-Hur is that it just ends with this open, clearing question. Like, is it possible that the God that you've been following is not who you thought he was? Or, or maybe put another way, is it possible to have a faith in God that doesn't honor God? Like, Ben-Hur had this idea of what God was up to, and he had faith in that God, but it wasn't, wasn't exactly what was happening. The story that we're going to look at today uh, is in 1 Samuel, uh, chapters 4 through 7. If you're just joining us, uh, my name is Tristan. Uh, I get to serve here with our family and youth, um, and we have been going through the book of 1 Samuel up to this point. Uh, we've worked through chapters 1 through 3. Today, we're going to cover 4 through 7. It's going to be a lot, but I trust you guys will bear with me. Um, but as we'll see— uh, this morning, it is possible to have a faith in God that isn't honoring to him, that isn't honoring to his ways. And, and what we'll see is that um, faith, belief that honors God always results in worship of him alone and trust in him alone. We'll see both the Israelites and the Philistines displaying a kind of faith in God, but it falls so far short of what God desires. So look with me at 1 Samuel chapter 4. Um, it begins, uh, we'll begin uh, in verse 1. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So the story opens up, and we're just diving right in. Um, they were, were not given the context for why Israel was batting the Philistines, but this is kind of setting the stage for the story that we're going to be um, reading today. So the Israelites go into battle against the Philistines, and one of the things that we've uh, learned already in the book of Samuel uh, comes from Hannah's prayer. So um, Samuel is a prophet of the Lord. Uh, we learn that in chapter 3. He is given as the promise to this lady named Hannah, um, who was uh, she was praying for a son. She was barren for a number of years. God gave her a son. She said, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. And she gives birth to Samuel. So when she takes Samuel up to um, the tabernacle of God at Shiloh, um, she gives this beautiful prayer. Um, and in it, 
It's nothing like the prayer that Abby and I uh, prayed when we had our son Wesley. Uh, She says a couple of things like, God, you're so great. And then she spends the majority of her prayer talking about God's justice and how he's going to trample um, his enemies. It's kind of this weird prayer that you're kind of left scratching your head like, what kind of prayer is that? And, And But what we see is her prayer is foretelling how God is going to act, how he's going to work throughout the rest of this book. It kind of serves as almost an outline of what God is going to do in this book. And one of the things that God says, uh, or Hannah says in this prayer to God, is that God protects the feet of his faithful ones. And so when we open up the story of 1 Samuel 4, and right off the bat, the Israelites get walloped, 4,000 men die, we're kind of left scratching our heads. Like, who was unfaithful? The Israelites or God? It's not yet clear, so we'll keep going. It says in verse 3, When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? You see, they get like, okay, if, all right, if God is the one who promised that he'll protect our feet if we're faithful to him, and we lost, that, that means that God was responsible for this. And, and so what do they do? They say, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So, uh, as I said, we've got a lot to cover this morning. We're not going to camp out on every verse, but this verse has a lot for us that will help explain um, the rest of the passage this morning. So, the first thing to, uh, for us to look at is that it says that they want to go to Shiloh. So they lose in battle, they want to go to Shiloh. Now, in chapter 3, um, it opens up, the, the chapter says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. But by the end of chapter 3, look with me in verse 19, it says, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Shiloh, sorry, to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So, the beginning of chapter 3, the word of the Lord was rare. By the end of chapter 3, there's an established prophet living in Shiloh. And I love, I love these couple of verses. This would not have passed in any of the papers that I wrote in college. Listen to how redundant this is. Samuel grew up. He, uh, none of the words uh, of his mouth fell to the ground. Uh, Israel to, um, knew that Samuel was a prophet. And then this is my favorite verse. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. It's like, this is so redundant, but what do you think the author is trying to communicate? that there's a prophet at Shiloh who is speaking on behalf of God. It's like, that is the end of chapter three, and then chapter four starts. They get stomped in battle, and it says they want to go to Shiloh. We should expect to be like, man, that's so good. God is speaking to Samuel at Shiloh. You could go and consult God, but it doesn't say that. It says, let's go to Shiloh and grab the Ark of the Covenant, which is the next thing that we should look at, because the Ark of the Covenant isn't something that we think about often. I've got a picture here. Um, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It's called a bunch of different names. It's called um, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony. Uh, they're all pointing to the, the same thing. This is a chest um, that was constructed uh, in the book of Exodus. It contains the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So there's two tablets of the law that are contained within the chest, and the lid, so to speak, on top of the chest uh, is called the mercy seat. You can see it's got all these like really fine tendrils coming out of it. There are two cherubim with their wings facing each other. Cherubim are like angelic beings. The whole thing is made purely of gold. It's this amazing work of craftsmanship that they were able to shape all of it into this beautiful masterpiece. And that lid is called the mercy seat. The mercy seat is often throughout the whole Old Testament referred to as God's throne. 
Now, it's a little bit tricky because we know that God is omnipresent, um, that uh, other scriptures say that our God is seated in the heavens, um, but there's this reality that God, uh, he, he often refers to himself as the one seated enthroned upon the cherubim on the mercy seat. And so God, as he relates to the Israelites, has manifested his presence among the Israelites at this specific spot over the mercy seat, over the ark. So it's really, really important. Uh, it's so important, in fact, that there's a whole uh, tent called the tabernacle constructed to protect it from other people. We see in Genesis 3 that uh, once Adam and Eve have sinned, God, protecting them from his holiness, removes them from the garden. And just like God's holiness is um, dangerous to uh, us, God puts in specific measures to protect his people from the ark where he sits enthroned. So look with me at this uh, picture. We've got the outer courts um, where the priests would offer up burnt uh, offerings to the Lord. Uh, within the tabernacle, there is the holy place, and the holy place is separated by a veil from the most holy place, or other times it's referred to as the holy of holies. And inside the holy of holies, only very specific people could go in at certain times of year um, and under very specific circumstances. Like, it is a big deal that these laws are kept. Uh, the tabernacle was actually, it, like I said, it's a tent um, where God gave these instructions for the people when they were right outside of Egypt before they had gotten into the promised land. And so he gave them these instructions, but then there's this box that, this chest that you can't really move because it's got to be protected. So he gave specific measures for how the ark could be transported. There is one clan called the Kohathites in the tribe of Levi in the whole uh, nation of Israel that were responsible for, they were the only ones who were able to move this. So I'm giving you all this information to say, like, you can't just go and move this thing flippantly. Th this is a very significant thing. It's actually never been taken into battle other than one time. In Joshua 6, uh, we see that God commands, as the Israelites go out to engage the Jericho in battle, that he commands that the ark go before them. And so there was one time where the ark went with them into battle, but the difference is, is that in Joshua 6, God commands that the ark be taken. In our passage this morning, uh, there's no mention of that. So this would be like taking the king, ripping him out of his throne room, taking him into battle as a good luck charm instead of as the God of the universe, the one who controls all things, who made all things, and who de demands our worship. And so they're being very flippant about their use of the ark. We've never seen this before. The Israelites had enough faith in God's power to recognize that without him, they would lose. But they didn't have enough faith in God's ways to seek his counsel. Like, they should have gone to Shiloh and sought the Lord's help. Samuel was there. Um, it says, the first verse in this chapter says that um, Samuel's word went out to all Israel. Like, it would have been a no-brainer to say, all right, God, we were defeated in battle. We're ready to repent. What happened? Let's go consult the Lord. But instead, they used the Lord to manipulate him into uh, giving them blessing. And we see right off the bat that belief that honors God always results in trusting in his ways and worshiping him alone. It's not what the Israelites have done here. So let's see what happens. Um, oh, one, one more quote about this. The, the mere presence of the ark, uh, this came from um, the Bible knowledge commentary. The mere presence of the ark did not guarantee God's favor. Rather, it was submission to the God of the ark that was essential. God is omnipresent. He doesn't live in a box. He demands that we follow and trust in his ways. But, but the Israelites weren't concerned about worshiping God. They just wanted God's blessings. And so what do we see? In verse 7, it says, The Philistines were afraid. 
For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the same gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. And if, if that's all they said, we, we would be like, yeah, submit to God. Like, this is that same God. But what do they say? It says, so therefore take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Like the Israelites, the Philistines had faith in God's power, but it wasn't a faith that led them to trust and worship him. Like the Egyptians, they didn't meet God's power with repentance, but with resistance. And so uh, the story goes on. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So there's a lot in this. Uh, I think that the, the Philistines were probably just as surprised as the Israelites when they went out and crushed them, because they, they did. They mentally acknowledged, like, this God is a big deal. And so they mounted their best defense, and they went out, and they killed 30,000 men, more than seven times, who, like the ones who had lost in the last battle. It says that the ark of God was captured. Again, this is only the second time that the ark has ever been taken into battle, and God didn't command it this time. So this is a really big deal. Later on, uh, a, a man runs from the battle lines, and he goes, and he tells Eli what has happened. He says, uh, we've lost, your sons are dead, and the ark has been captured. This news was so startling to Eli that he falls off of his seat and dies. Like, this is a huge deal, but it's, it's huge for another reason. Uh, one of the verses that are in chapter 3, um, it, Sam, just to reiterate that Samuel is a prophet, Samuel actually prophesied that this would happen. Look with me in chapter 3, verse 11. It says, The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Eli's sons were warped. They're the ones who carried the ark into battle. Once they died, and news got back to e their father, Eli, like, he died too. And this is fulfilling Samuel's prophecy that this would happen. But I want to make mention of the first verse, verse 11. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. It doesn't say that the thing that will cause everyone's ears to tingle will be that Eli and his sons will die. It says that on that day that this uh, sensational ear-tingling news happens, on that day, his sons will die. So it seems like God knew that the ark was going to be captured. I mean, if you were an Israel living, Israelite living in this time, and you had not heard this history, and you had a proper reverence for the ark of God that is supposed to be within the tabernacle, that is supposed to be um, only visited by certain people, and you heard that it was taken into battle and captured, your ears would be tingling. Like, this was a huge deal. Never before happened. If the Israelites in chapter 4 uh, wanted blessings without having to worship God. Uh, excuse me, the, I got there too early. We're going to move on. So, the elders do, they want to go to Shiloh. They want to get the ark. Uh, I lost my place. 
we move on to chapter 5. We're going to go there. So chapter 5 is admittedly a weird history of what happens when the ark is captured. So we go from the perspective of the Israelites who have been unfaithful to God. They take the ark into battle. It gets captured. And then chapter 5, we switch perspectives. Now we're going to get it from the Philistine side. This is something that the Israelites didn't get. The Israelites have no idea what is going on with the ark. All they know is that they've blown it big time. The ark is gone. But we get, as the readers, an inside view into what happens in chapter 5. So in chapter 5, the first thing the Philistine rulers do is they take the ark uh, as their loot from battle, and they carry it, and they put it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Uh, This is in the city Ashdod, and uh, this, this is highly symbolic because if you think about the reason that you go to a temple uh, where there is a god is that you would go there to worship. And so by putting Israel's god in the temple of Ashdod, they believe that the god of the Israelites will be worshiping their god Ashdod, but, or their god Dagon, but they're making the same mistakes that the Israelites made, that God, god isn't in a box. You can't just manipulate him into serving. But God has a different plan for them, and they actually wake up the next morning after the Ark of the Covenant has been in the temple with their god Dagon, and Dagon, when they wake up that next morning, is prostrate before the Ark. Died in battle against the Philistines, and they haven't heard a peep from God. They have no clue what God is thinking about them. And then after seven months, the ark shows back up in an Israelite town in Beth Shemesh. You would think that they would flat out worship their faces off, like, thank you, God, for returning this. They didn't go back and capture the ark. God brought himself back. And that's not what they do. So uh, it says that they, um, they look inside the ark. And, and I can understand this. this. There were some men there who, upon receiving the ark, would have been really curious, because what does the ark contain? It contains tablets that God's law were written on. And after seven months of disappearance, I'd be really curious to see, like, are they still in there? But the point is, is that they still were not trusting God to protect, to preserve his own holiness. It's interesting that the town that this was delivered to, um, uh, Beth Shemesh, was one of the very few towns that the Kohathites, the specific clan within the still smaller tribe of the Levites of Israel that were supposed to handle the ark. So if there was anyone in all Israel who would have known how to handle the ark, it was the Kohathites who lived at Beth Shemesh. And what we see is that the most religious, the most qualified people are blowing it left and right in Israel. Um, one last thing that I skipped over a little bit um, is that when the Philistines sent the ark back, they sent it with a few gifts, um, some pieces of gold. And uh, it, it's interesting that they wanted to appease this God. Like, they still didn't believe that he was real because they were testing him, you know, using the cow trick. Um, but just in case he was real, they didn't want him to be upset. So they sent these gold. And uh, I love this. If the Israelites in chapter 4 wanted God's blessings without having to worship him, the Philistines in chapter 6 wanted to avoid God's judgment without having to worship him. Both people have faith in God, but neither of them were led to worship or to trust him rightly. Their belief didn't translate to trusting his ways or worshiping him. So that kind of brings us up to chapter 7. And at first, whenever I was given this passage, I was like, four chapters is a lot. But if we just ended after chapter 6, it would be like miserably depressing. So good news is around the corner. We're going to get into chapter 7. And uh, chapter 7 opens up with the name of Samuel. Which is really interesting because this is the book of Samuel. Um, 
Chapters 1 through 3 highlight Samuel's rise to prominence in Israel. Uh, by the end of chapter 3, we read that like the Lord was speaking to Samuel um, in Shiloh. God was there. All Israel heard Samuel's words. But then in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Samuel is nowhere to be seen. And I think that there's a, po- a poetic nature to that, that while God was speaking to Samuel, the word of the Lord was rare for a time, but now it's not. He's speaking to Samuel, but his people weren't going to listen. They're proving that. They're proving that any time that they had opportunity to worship God rightly, they weren't doing it. And so Samuel, uh, both literally and I think poetically, disappears from chapters 4 to 6. But he shows up in chapter 7. Um, after 20 years um, uh, of the ark being back in Israelite possession, I, I missed something here. So the, the Israelites in Beth Shemesh, who got the ark of the covenant, they too, like the Philistines, after these 50 men died from peering in the, the ark, they said, we don't want the ark either. These are God's people given the ark after seven months of it being in enemy hands. It comes back to them, they blow it, and they say, like the Philistines, this God is too powerful. We don't want the ark to stay with us. And so they give it to another town, Kiriath-Jerim. And that's where it stays for about 20 years. And that's where our story picks up in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. We're going to keep going through. Uh, It says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. This is great. But Samuel starts with, if. If today you're serving the Lord only. And what we see right before this text, it says that all of Israel was lamenting after the Lord. So for 20 years, they've, the, the ark is at Kiriath-Jerim. There seems to be relative stability, no Philistine battles. There's not a lot packed into what those 20 years contain, but it says that at the end of those 20 years, all of Israel lamented after the Lord. But the first thing that Samuel says is to put away your false gods. So what we see is that they were sorry for their sin. They were lamenting, but there's a kind of lamenting that doesn't lead to proper worship. Second uh, Corinthians 7 talks about uh, there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. It's like, oh man, I blew it. Oh, God, I'm just so unfaithful to you, and I just wish that I was different. But it doesn't lead to life. It, it, it's self-centered. It's, they're, they're lamenting after the Lord, but they haven't put their, their uh, idols away, their false gods. So the, the fact that Samuel has to tell them to put their false gods away says that they have not, uh, as Second Corinthians 7 would say, produced a godly sorrow, one that leads to life and repentance. But as we're about to see, we're going to get to see that. So, uh, let's, let's just break this down. There are actually three commands that uh, Samuel gives in this passage to the Israelites um, for them to go back to the Lord. Um, the first one, it says, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. So you may be here today, and like the Israelites, you do want God's blessing. Um, it was clear that all throughout, like they, they brought the ark into battle with them because they wanted God's blessing. Um, they, they do, they are lamenting after the Lord. It's clear that they have a a heart for the Lord, but it has not led to them getting rid of their other false gods. Uh, let me just list some of the uh, blessings that we have available to us as Christians. Uh, this is from Galatians 5. We got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That list is actually called the fruits of the Spirit. It's found in Galatians 5, and they are the fruits of our relationship with the Spirit. That is God, the Holy Spirit, how many of us want love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? 
apart from God. Like, there is a way to desire God's blessings without desiring God himself. And that's exactly what they had done. They wanted, they wanted God to restore the, the dignity of Israel. Um, they, they wanted the glory of Israel to come back, but they, they hadn't turned away from their idols. And if we don't turn away from our idols, then we cannot have a proper heart of worship. Which leads me to the second uh, command that um, Samuel gives in this verse, and that is, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. You might think that um, directing your heart to the Lord and putting away your um, false gods go hand in glove, but I don't think that it's quite that clear. Um, I I think that we can often be guilty of this, that we will say, um, maybe to our children, because I I work with the kids here, um, we can say, um, you know, if you want to serve the Lord with all your heart, change your behavior. Don't be so disrespectful. Don't, uh, and we give them a list of behaviors that they can modify, that they can change. We'll, we'll say, you know, if you want to return to the Lord with all your heart, uh, stop sinning. But Samuel, I think rightly, says, and direct your heart to the Lord. You see, there, there's this sin avoidant posture that I think we can settle for. Like, in your kids, if they're being disrespectful, you might say, um, stop being disrespectful because I told you so. And that is very biblical. Like, there are passages all over Scripture that say, obey your parents, Um, you have a good foundation for that. But how different is that than stop being disrespectful because a heart that is obsessed with Jesus does not look like that. Like, it's not just change your behavior, but it's change your behavior because your heart is directed toward the Lord. I think as Christians, we could talk a lot about wanting to be different from the world, to be set apart from the world. But the reason we should be set apart from the world, the reason that we should look different, that we should, you know, do different things is only because we look so much like God. We don't have to go manufacturing things to look different than the world about. If we follow God, if you turn away from your your false gods and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, you will be different from the world. So apparently Samuel's message sunk in because we get the first good response in all four of these chapters. Um, It says, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they served the Lord only. Um, which is really, really cool. Uh, There's been a lot of hardship that's gone on in Israel, um, so it's really great that they get this little break. Um, They've returned to the Lord, um, but immediately, the Philistines catch wind that all of Israel is gathered in one spot. So they start thinking, all of Israel is gathered at Mizpah. 20 years ago, when we just faced their soldiers, their God was not strong enough to stop us. What if we went and wiped out all of the Israelites? They're all there. Let's just go and put an end to them forever. And so the Philistines, they go up to war against the Israelites. The Israelites are just getting their stuff figured out, but they go up, and uh, it's actually really, really cool. The Israelites, they actually ask Samuel, do not stop praying for us. They finally are starting to get that, like, dependence on the Lord isn't just a guarantee because of your namesake. Like, just because you're the Israelites doesn't mean that God is for you. That there's a, a repentance that they need to call upon the Lord, that they need to plead with him. So they, they beckon Samuel, don't stop praying for us. And look what happens in verse 10. It says, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, and they threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Now, apart from being really cool, this is the first victory that they've had in these passages, and I just want to remind you, like, it would have been a really bummy morning if we stopped before we got to this passage, because it would have just been lost, 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 have a good week. So, 
we're getting good news. Like, apart from God defeating their enemies, this is a direct quotation from uh, Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. And Hannah, in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, it says um, that uh, she says that God will thunder against her enemies. Uh, Let me read it. Against them he will thunder in heaven. So, again, while Hannah's prayer seemed to, at first, contain some pretty wacky elements for being a prayer of thanksgiving for her child, we're seeing it play out. She was telling, she was foretelling what would happen in this book. And just a couple chapters later, God is thundering against his enemies, just like he said in chapter 2, verse 10. Now, God thundering against his enemies like this is actually really close to how God wanted all of their battles to go. Um, In Deuteronomy 20, uh, I would encourage you to go back and read it later. It's a really cool text that talks about how God wants his people to go out into battle. It's basically their wartime codes. So Deuteronomy 20, uh, to give you the the synopsis of it, um, he starts off by saying, drastically whittle down your army. He he says, um, if you have planted a vineyard but you haven't enjoyed your wine, uh, you can leave. If you have um, if you're betrothed to someone but you haven't gotten to marry them yet, you can leave. If you have built a house but you haven't dedicated it yet, you can leave. If you're fearful at all, you can leave. Like, God is clearing house. Then, after he drastically whittles down their army, he says, then go out to battle and offer them peace first. And then third, if they don't accept your offerings of peace, then I, not you, will deliver them into your hand. And so, we see God intentionally making his people have to depend on him. Like, over and over throughout the Bible, it says that Israel, though the smallest among the nations, God wants to make it great, and God wants to multiply the nations, bless the nations all through Israel, but time and time again, he has them to scale back to not intentionally advance their armies. In Joshua 11, there's a really interesting story where, um, so they're following God's wartime codes, so that means that basically they're bringing a pocket knife to a gunfight, and they go into battle in Joshua 11, and God commands them, after I've delivered them into your hands, don't collect their chariots and horses. So after they bring your pocket knife to a gunfight, God says, don't collect their guns afterwards. Just keep your pocket knife. It's like God deliberately over and over has them stay weak. He, he doesn't want kings. And uh, in Deuteronomy 17, when he's talking about what kind of king, he says, don't amass a lot of horses. He doesn't want them to have a standing army. He wants them to be dependent on him. Uh, we, we should take note that Samuel is leading the people in worship of God up until the very last second. Um, There's a quote that I found that, speaking of this kind of faith, uh, this gentleman said, one must have enough faith to run against a doorless wall up to the last centimeter, and a certain hope that the God who leads one in this way will not allow his people to break their heads. More than once we have believed ourselves to be finished. Then, in the last minute, God stepped in and made it clear to us, so clear that we were ashamed of ourselves, that he only needs to move a little finger to make things come out quite otherwise than we could have foreseen. So it's like Samuel is leading them in worship, as verse 10 goes, um, as he is offering the burnt sacrifice, the Philistines drew near, and God I I can imagine these Israelites were shaken in their boots because 20 years isn't a very long time to, uh, like, they would have remembered, and many of them probably even had relatives, close friends, people that they loved who were defeated in the battle just 20 years ago. But 20 years is more than enough time for you to get your heart right before the Lord. And that's what had happened. Over those 20 years, they had devoted their hearts to the Lord so much so that even as the Philistines were approaching to attack, they were able to worship up to the last second as if they were running against a doorless wall up to the last centimeter. Um, we shouldn't be a people who have faith in God until it makes sense. You know, I, I think that you know, if we're going through something that's challenging, maybe a difficult circumstance, you've got your, your fight that you're going through, and 
and maybe, you know, at the beginning, you were in your, your diary, in your prayer journal, you were in scripture, you were talking with close friends, you're, you're battling this really, really well, but then it's just not working. Nothing's changing. And so you change your methods. Now, I, that's going to vary depending on circumstances, but my point is, is that how easy is it for us to have faith in God until it makes sense, in which case we really turn to our own devices. That is not what the Israelites were doing here. Um, there's a verse that um, has helped Abby and I get through a hard time uh, when Wesley was having some medical complications, our two-year-old. Um, it, Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And, um, you know, the chariots, the, the tanks of, the, um, of biblical times that we were tempted to put our trust in were medical advances. We live in an amazing country with a lot of medical equipment. Uh, Wesley was at Dayton Children's, and it was very easy for us to put our hope, our trust, in Dayton Children's. But there was one night where we just prayed through and called on God, and we said, God, if you don't move, no medical technology could... Um, could prevent our son from dying. And, and thankfully, he's down in the infant's room. I'm sure I'm hitting one of your kids. Um, but <laughs> the, the, the point is, is that we are called to use God's means to fight in these matters. Uh, just as the Israelites were participating in God's mission um, at the specific time to develop an earthly kingdom, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than any other thing. It, it's easy to think that, you know, God uh, was, was doing this thing here, and then, you know, we've got our own thing here, but Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of all of the, this messianic kingship language. Christ literally means Messiah or king. It was the, the Greek word for king. And so Jesus coming as our king, we are in God's kingdom. And our mission, uh, it was easy for, uh, one of the things that I think that Deuteronomy has them offer peace first is because God wants to see every nation worship him. You know, when we're given the great commission, uh, we want to see disciples made of every nation. That wasn't new. That wasn't God's new desire. It was like, you know, before he wanted, you know, earthly conquest, but now he wants um, disciples. It's, I think God wanted, and we see this, uh, Rahab saved from Jericho. He devoted the whole city to destruction, but Rahab repented and followed the Lord. We see God desiring people to worship him. And so, as we're given the Great Commission, our fight in the kingdom of God is to advance against spiritual forces. Uh, Paul um, clarifies that our enemy— in Ephesians 6, uh, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And how do you fight such a spiritual battle? He clarifies again in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, the weapons, of, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So we, who are given this task of the Great Commission, um, how are we to fight? circle back to the beginning of this message, I started off with talking about Ben-Hur. Um, Ben-Hur, he, he does, he, he knows. He would have had First Samuel and Second Samuel, all of those stories in the back of his head, and it was actually from Second Samuel that he knew that God was going to one day put a man on the throne forever. Second Samuel 7 prophesies about someone from David's lineage, and he came to believe that Jesus was this guy. So he had every right to expect that God was going to come in, this, this man Jesus claiming to be the Messiah, and what he realized is that God was fighting a different enemy than what he thought. You know, he, he had every reason to want uh, Rome to be crushed. They ruined his family. Uh, his mother and sister were separated from him. They sold him into slavery. And, and he knew that one day God would develop a kingdom that every nation would bow to. And he thought, this Jesus, the king, the one who's been promised, but what do we see? 
Jesus breaks down the power of sin and death. It's so much bigger than Rome. It's not just about trading Roman territory for Israelite territory or, or Philistine territory for Israelite territory. It's about seeing every knee bow before the king. And that can't happen until sin and these uh, spiritual forces are broken. And that is the fight that Jesus fought and won. Ben-Hur didn't see it, but I hope that we get to see it. Look, look back with me uh, at chapter 10, or sorry, verse 7, chapter 10 in 1 Samuel. It says, uh, if I could get that slide up. Uh, it says that just as Samuel was offering the burnt offering of a young, spotless, sinless lamb, God thundered against the enemies. And we see Jesus, even in these texts, when Jesus was walking the earth, he, he uh, after his, he was risen in Luke 24, there's an account of, um, of Jesus explaining from all of the scriptures how they point to himself. And I think that uh, chapter 7, verse 10 um, is an example of that, that Samuel was leading the people in worship. He was offering a burnt offering, um, a, a, a lamb, a whole lamb burnt offering, and it was as the Philistines drew near to attack that the Lord thundered. And we see Jesus even here. God was fighting a fight of sin. Why would you offer a, a burnt lamb? Or why would you offer a lamb? It, it was a sin offering. And God was undoing the powers of sin even there. And so Judah Ben-Hur, he was right to want all those things. The Romans were oppressive, they were wicked, um, they were irreverent. But God is fighting a different fight. You see, it's possible to have a faith in God that doesn't honor him because what we really want is God to advance the kingdom that we want. We want, we want God to just bless our efforts in advancing um, the kingdom that we think that God is calling us to. But God, God has been on this mission since before we were born. Since the beginning of time, God has been creating a people who would worship him for eternity, and we are invited to participate in that story. Uh, Judah, Judah Ben-Hur missed it, but we have the opportunity today to, like Samuel encourages us to, to turn back and repent. Uh, we can fight in the battle that Jesus has set before us. He says in Matthew 4, 9, uh, 19, if anyone would come before me, let him pick up his cross. And that is how we fight God's battle. So would you pray with me this morning uh, as, we, um, as we do that? God, we, we need your help. Um, <laughs> I was talking with someone after the first service and just talking about how foolish the Israelites can be. And he's like, man, this story would sound just like that if it was a story of your life. And God, that is so true that um, time and time again, though you give me opportunity to serve you, I, I fight my own way. I, um, I forget you. I give maybe my, my half best. I, I try to drag um, you into the battles that I want you to win. And all along, you're just asking me to come to you. Uh, so I pray that um, we would take up the call of Matthew 419, that we'd pick up our cross and follow you, um, that we would fight against the enemy, um, the enemy as old as time, the, the enemy that um, you have sent running. Um, you thundered against him when you were uh, on the cross, and you invite us to participate in that work of making disciples, seeing you worshipped across the whole globe. I pray that we would today um, pick up that burden um, and, and follow you into that, Lord. pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen.